0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt, pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Kevin, it's great to have you here.
1: Good to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, Kevin, today we want to talk about the book of Revelation. Ordinarily, I'm almost afraid to talk about that because it seems like uh, some of the more wild TV shows that you see... People take that book and they kind of manipulate it, pressing it into a form that fits the latest news, and uh, I'm not so sure that it fits that way or is supposed to be used that way. So uh, I'm just wondering, um, to get us started today on a plain answer, could you tell us um, what you see as the main themes of the book of Revelation?
1: Sure, Dan. I think um, you've hit on an important point in that the book is... Um, often used in ways which, uh, to be charitable, we're going to have to say distort the text and are trying to bend it, to read it in light of current events, and often used to make predictions and the like. And, um, and that's uh, unfortunate. Uh, and a second thing that goes along with that, where the book is not being used for some sort of... Uh, contemporary reading of daily events, the book is in general neglected, sadly. It's not often preached on or um, used in the church's life, and that's a, a terribly sad thing because it is the capstone and the culmination of biblical revelation. It draws on almost every major theme in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it is the last word, if you will, that God has spoken to us. Uh, before the coming of the kingdom and its consummation. I think a primary thing to emphasize here is emphasized by John at the outset of the book where he says in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. And so the first thing about the book of Revelation is that it's a revelation. The book does not intend to be obscure or um, impenetrable. The book intends to unveil, and what it unveils is Jesus Christ. He is both the content of the revelation, and he's the agent of the revelation. And so God gives us this book to build up and to edify the church. In fact, it's the only book which comes with a promise, also in the prologue. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So there's a a promised blessing for reading and hearing. And here you can see that, that the book is intended to be read and heard in the church's public worship. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those, the many, who hear. And so God gave the book to be read heard, and kept or obeyed so that we might be blessed. And so we, what we have here, first and foremost, is a revelation that is to be used in the church's life and that is to be obeyed. And so the first thing we want to say about approach to the book is the book on this count is like any other book in the New Testament. It is not given to us for speculation or for... Um, wild, sort of fantastical interpretations. The book was given originally to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and the Risen Christ writes prophetic letters, exhortations, including rebuke, to all seven churches in chapters two and three. And so, another thing we have to say about approach, besides the book is a revelation, the book is to, to be read, heard, kept, and obeyed for blessing, is that the book was written to seven actual concrete churches on the ground in Asia Minor in the first century. And so I think this roots are and, and chastens and disciplines our interpretation such that we want to ask ourselves, now we can't always do this with perfect precision, but we want to ask ourselves, what would this mean? To these seven churches on the western end of Asia Minor, in the first century. So, those are a couple of things on approach. But more, more broadly, going into the historically, uh, the way the churches handled the book, there are some interpretations which are um, called uh, historical interpretations, which see the book as unfolding in some level of detail. The whole history of the church and her enemies, so you might see in here the rise of the Roman Church, the rise of Islam, the rise of the Soviet Union, uh, and historical readings have they do have good precedent. many of the reformers and and, uh, and historical exegetes took this historicist approach to the book, but generally. No one takes it in any kind of a strict fashion today. That's not to say that the book doesn't have historical references. It does. It's just to say that that as an overall approach tends to be an approach which, um, depending on where you sit in history and where your perspective is, um, allows the interpreter to see completely different things or different historical events. So there's this historicist approach. The dominant approach today is probably something called futurism where usually from about chapter four on, we're dealing with the very end times, maybe the last seven years or the la- very last days of the church before the second coming. And that's a popular mode of interpretation, and there are good folks who take that mode as well. Um, there's another school known as um, the Preterist approach. The Preterists tend to see the book as largely dealing with, at least in the first, say, 18 or 19 chapters, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., preterist from the, the Latin meaning past. So the preterist approach is really a minority approach today, but again, there are good and talented interpreters who take that. And a fourth major school of approach is known as the idealist approach. And the idealists say, well, the book is not specifically about end-time events or particular historical events or necessarily about 70 A.D., the book is a set of uh, patterns that recur throughout the church's life, and it's meant to teach a set of lessons that are perpetually um, relevant for the church's life, so that the book presents, if you will, a series of um, object lessons, uh, ideals, that the church is to adhere to. Now, the approach that I take and a a lot of uh, contemporary uh, expositors in our tradition take is somewhat eclectic. What we would say is none of those four categories really suits the book. The book does deal with relevant historical matters. I mean, it must in some ways because it's written to these seven historical churches in Asia Minor. Um, The book in some ways refers to things which are already past because it refers to the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ and the in the, in the the giving of the Spirit. Um, the book does have historical references. The beast, I would contend, refers first and foremost to the Roman Empire, but is also a type of other kinds of bestial opponents of the Church. And of course, the book has a future dimension because the Second Coming and the New Heavens and the New Earth are depicted at the end. So, I think a responsible approach is going to try and read the book as a letter, because first of all, it's a letter. Uh, secondly, it is prophecy. Um, re, you know chapter one verse three, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Right? And it also is a symbolic uh, book full of full of symbols that are heavily used in a type of literature we call apocalyptic literature, like, say, the book of Daniel has got much of it is apocalyptic, or uh, parts of the book of Zechariah are apocalyptic. And so in that sense, the book is an apocalyptic prophetic letter. So let me pick up, Dan, on this idea of apocalyptic symbolism. In, uh, in verse 1, it says that Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And and the phrase there, made it known, is literally he signified it. So the book is full of symbols. This is why it becomes difficult. The, the symbols can be complicated. But they are drawn primarily, uh, dominantly, from the Old Testament. And so to understand Revelation, it turns out we really need to know our Old Testament very well. Mm. The book draws more than any other book in the Bible by far on the Old Testament. Although John never cites the Old Testament directly, he alludes to it, um, draws on it, reworks its symbolism extensively from beginning to the end. So that does present uh, a certain set of challenges. But if we keep in mind that it's a letter, that it is a prophecy, and that it's using apocalyptic symbolism, so therefore we need to be sensitive to that symbolism, I think we can interpret it in a sane and also in a way that's useful for the church's obedience and blessing as a revelation of Jesus Christ.
0: So you try to let this book speak for itself without forcing a particular uh, pattern on it. You just kind of draw the patterns out of it. This part of um, the seven churches that appears early in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about those churches?
1: Sure, I think this is a very important and often neglected part of the book because one now the the letters to the seven churches, which are all churches in Asia Minor, John is writing from Patmos, which is an island uh, that the Romans used for political prisoners out in the Aegean Sea, and he writes to these seven churches, which he obviously had a pastoral and. Um, apostolic relationship with. All seven of these churches are sort of on the western side of Asia Minor, but it reminds us that the book was written to real Christians in the first century. Now, some people date the book around 67 to 70 AD. That's the minority view, but the majority of interpreters see the book as coming from about 95 AD under the emperor Domitian. Um, we can't be sure about this, and there's ongoing debates. But, but in any case, um, what you have in Chapters 2 and 3 is a, is, a, uh, is the risen, transfigured, and ascended and glorified Christ who's depicted at the end of Chapter 1 speaking to all seven of the churches, using some of the symbolism from Chapter 1's image of him uh, to, to introduce himself to each of these churches, knowing their situation— encouraging them, yet often, in all cases, but one finding fault and a need to reprove them, and then encouraging them to to press on and conquer. And the situations in those churches are often uh, connected to um, the oppression, um, the embryonic kind of persecution and harassment that the churches are feeling under the heel of Uh, the Roman Empire, and in some cases also the Jewish community in their city. So if you look at the kinds of things these churches are struggling with, they often have to do with compromising uh, with either the imperial cult, that is the local Roman worship in Asia Minor, um, the, the, the pagan religions that are also at play on the ground in Asia Minor. And this is often depicted as... Um, like say the teaching of Jezebel or the or the Nicolaitans or the teaching of Balaam, these are generally viewed to be three forms of the same sort of thing, three sets of false teaching persons or perhaps movements in the early church that were seducing the church to compromise with the empire. So here we have to say a couple of things. Um, the book is, in many ways... Um, a political resistance tract written to the church in its uh, calling to be faithful witnesses. Jesus is depicted, um, one of the primary ways he's depicted in the book is as the faithful witness who conquered by being conquered. And the church is called to bear witness to him who is the faithful witness, to conquer even in its persecution, even in its martyrdom. This is why the martyrs are depicted in the book not as defeated, but as reigning with Christ in heaven. And so the titles, for example, given to Jesus throughout the book um, are titles which have a clear political edge to them, to to say that he is um, the first and the last, or the Alpha and the Omega, are are to say that he has sovereign authority over history and over the churches and not the empire. Mm -hmm. Um, To call him the Son of God is to say that the Roman Emperor uh, some of whom claim to be sons of God, is not the son of God. To worship him on the Lord's Day, as chapter 1 says, is to say that the Lord's Day is is the, is the day over which the Lord is sovereign. The emperors had their own special holy days, mm-hmm. but the Lord's Day and the gathering of the church is a political statement about who is truly sovereign and who is truly the administrator and the head and the king of a universal empire. I think this is often missed in the book, but there's no doubt, I think, that this, this is present. And so, when you come to these seven churches in Asia Minor, they, they are under pressure in a number of ways. Economic pressure from local trade guilds, because the trade guilds, their meetings were held in pagan temples, and often some sort of alliance, either to the pagan gods or to the imperial worship, was required for them to buy and sell economically. And so the images in the book of, say, Jezebel seducing people to eat food sacrificed to idols or to engage in uh, sexual immorality, while probably including actual sexual immorality, would also include and perhaps primarily refer to spiritual adultery. In other words, they're being tempted to compromise the faith um, and dilute the faith by capitulating to the claims of sovereignty and economic um, domination by the empire. So, for example, the church in Smyrna, uh, the Christ says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. Um, now, their poverty has probably come about because it's difficult for them to engage in the economic life of the city because that economic life was tied to trade guilds which were tied to pagan worship, right? And and, in some ways, perhaps directly or indirectly, tied to um, the acknowledgement of the empire. Now, the Jews, because of their ancestral faith, had negotiated essentially a legal settlement with the Roman Empire, which said they will not have to burn incense and declare that Caesar is Lord. All they they had to do was offer sacrifice in the temple for the emperor and pray Mm -hmm. for him. But the Jews in Smyrna, for example, are apparently slandering and accusing Christians. And our best uh, reconstruction is that they're probably essentially informing the officials of the empire that these Christians are not just a sect of Jews. They're a different religion. And thus, like all other Gentile religions, they should have to pay obeisance to the empire. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches, are constantly called to conquer, to overcome. They're given promises. Most of these promises refer to our coming eschatological communion and glory with Christ. A new name, the hidden manna, um, a pillar in the temple of my God. To the one who overcomes, you know, I will. He will rule the nations. He will sit down on my throne, even as I sat down on my father's throne. And so, the basic thrust of the book is to encourage these seven churches. In the teeth. Now, remember, at the time the book's written, the Roman Empire has not at least its full fury on these churches. But we're beginning to see it break in in, in ways of uh, economic coercion, local worship, um, sexual immorality, other pressures, but will later lead to a slew of martyrdom. And, uh, you know, in one church, Antipas uh, is, is named by name as one who's already been killed mm. for the faith. Jesus calls him his his faithful witness. So the church is being encouraged to faithful witnesses. And, and so the book is a very practical book that says to the church on the ground, um, don't be seduced by the claims of the government you're living under mm-hmm. or the empire you're under. Be faithful. Be discerning. And so one of the things the book is trying to do, and this, this comes out not only in the seven churches but throughout the text, is that... The book of Revelation is trying to restructure our imaginations, to read the world, see the world, and discern the world appropriately, not as the world will narrate itself to us, but as he who is risen, who has eyes that are flaming fire, whose feet are burnished bronze, whose voice is like rolling thunder. As that one narrates the world, the martyrs are not defeated, mm-hmm. they're conquerors. The church is not poor, it's rich. Those who slander the church are, are false. Um, and and, and and Christ is seen with His Church exalted and triumphant over against all the bestial forces of the empire that are beginning to be unleashed and will be more intensely released upon the Church.
0: That uh, that reminds me of the verse of Scripture. It talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that our imaginations now track much more closely to what God is doing, what He wants us to see, uh, His standards, and how He views the world and how we are to interpret the things that are occurring in the world. I'm thinking also, you know, here in America, we're seeing more and more minor persecution. Maybe we wouldn't have seen it 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, Just as something simple as having to bake a a cake, you know, right. for for a homosexual wedding, let's say. Um, I, I'm not sure people in our case uh, understand that, you know, we, we can serve um, various types of people in this world, no problem, but to participate in the worship service is a very important distinction. And, and that's what these folks here in these churches um, probably were facing, too, where they They could go so far but no further when it came to ascribing worship to a false god.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is an analogy there. Now, I I do want to add this caveat. Um, We have some very disturbing cultural and political trends at our door. There's no doubt about that. We also have a culture which has descended into a kind of nihilism, which has denied not only God and biblical revelation and, and Christ and his redemptive actions, but um, as sort of downstream from that has denied um, the existence of objective truth and everything we'd want to say about the human person or human nature or natural law. Uh, and so these are very serious things, and we need to take them seriously. That being said, um, we, don't, we want to be, be clear that um, we are not in the situation or even close to the situation that these churches would eventually or soon be in. Right. And secondly, we're not in the situation that our brothers and sisters in Iraq or Syria right. or Iran are in. So we, we want to be cautious about this. We don't want to be melodramatic about it. Um, that's, that's the first caveat. The second caveat is it is always tricky to take the political resistance tract – which is one of the things that Revelation is, mm-hmm. and apply it to our current political situation. It is, it is tricky, and not everyone will agree on the applications. That being said, I'll make one. And, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps our listeners will see it. I think you've already alluded to it. Um, there are two beasts that emerge in the book of Revelation. And the, uh, the first, they, they both emerge in, uh, in full array in chapter 13. One is the beast out of the sea. Uh, the chaotic churning of the sea is, is, a, is a picture of the nations and their turmoil and out of the beast, and that, that's, that sea beast is generally recognized as the Roman Empire. But again, we would see it as the Roman Empire first, but it would also apply to other bestial empires, the Soviet Empire, for example. Um, the second, so that, that beast is essentially a political force which crushes and is drunk on the blood of the saints. So the first beast stands essentially for state power, right? Mm -hmm. And and it is important to see that the state has largely been the instrument that has oppressed the church through the ages and is responsible for the death of many, many uh, of the people of God. That beast is supported… By the emergence of a second beast, the land beast, also called the false prophet in the book of Revelation. And the false prophet is essentially the propaganda arm of the first beast. (laughs) So you have a monstrous state power, and then you have essentially a subordinate propaganda power which seduces people to worship the state power. Now, I do think that we see something like that. Now, admittedly, in our case, it's much softer (laughs) and friendlier. It's not at this point executing Christians or anything like that but we do see a situation where the state and various propaganda agencies perhaps the uh, the media elite are conspiring to make christianity and christians look like bigots and narrow-minded people and in, and essentially enforcing our consent and so this is an example of the fa- of the uh, idea that you can't buy or sell Without the mark of the beast. If you don't capitulate to the beast's dictates and decrees, mm-hmm. well, then you don't get to be an executive at, 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 one, of, at one of these major companies, or, you don't, or your business will be taken away from you, or you'll lose your job as a clerk in Kentucky. So there is this um, analogy, and again, I want to be careful because the analogies are, are, um, are constructed you know, by the, by the interpreter. But I do think we're meant to see that kind of connection. We're at least meant to, to be provoked to think about that kind of connection and applying the book to our own day.
0: Yeah. One last question. For a listener to follow up on this, uh, what would you recommend that he or she do?
1: Well, I always say that the best single volume to get on this is Dennis Johnson's volume, The Triumph of the Lamb, he interprets the book in a fashion that's virtually identical to the fashion that I would take it in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: His approach to the book's the same. He's, he's a very um, competent and skilled interpreter. So The Triumph of the Lamb by Dennis Johnson, if someone wants a more detailed commentary than Gregory Beale's commentary on the book of Revelation, B-E-A-L-E, is, I think, as fine a commentary as there is out there. That would be, I think, you know the, the place to do it. If you don't want to bite off that much you could get an esv study bible Mm -hmm. and read the book of revelation in it which has a series of very good notes dennis johnson who i just mentioned who wrote the triumph of the lamb wrote the notes in the esv study bible so you could go through it that way um so that that's the way to go through the book
0: well thank you very much today i've been talking with dr kevin sherrett Senior Pastor, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. We've been talking about the Book of Revelation. And if you have a question for Dr. Sherritt, use our email address. That is ministry at org. Kevin, thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.